Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On October 11th, the United States signaled it had a phase one trade deal with China. This was the president of the United States in the Oval Office with the Chinese delegation. He said, we have come to a deal, pretty much, subject to getting it written. It'll take probably three weeks, four weeks, or five weeks. That was five weeks ago. Five weeks later, and the Financial Times is reporting that both sides are still struggling to close the gap. They write that according to people close to the talks, Trump administration officials are frustrated that China has not offered enough concessions to justify a reduction in U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, a long-standing demand from Beijing that has become further entrenched in recent weeks. And yet, just as Larry Kudlow insists we are coming down to the short strokes, we are in communication with them every single day right now. Apparently, that is enough to keep us at all-time highs, Paul. But there was a news uh, of the uh, in the last day or two that they still haven't even agreed upon soybeans. I thought soybeans was the easy part of the deal. I thought intellectual property and other big issues were, were going to be the really tough parts, but soybeans... The optimistic view of this market is unbelievable, yes. isn't it? Yeah, With really, us here in New York City, I'm pleased to say, Howard Ward, Gabelli Fund CIO of Growth Equities, a man that you will struggle to find on Wall Street at the moment, a man that doesn't believe in much of this and isn't getting behind the recent risk on rally. Howard, what's going on? Well, I, I think you've described the recent market action very accurately, but I, do, I think it's time for Larry Kudlow in the White House to put up or shut up and stop manipulating the market by tweet and comment about how how good the talks are going when the talks are done tell us what you have in the meantime please keep quiet this is really not uh, i think a professional way to be handling this situation so is it sits here the market it seems to be pricing in a phase one type of deal we're not even sure what a phase one type of deal really will look like so in the interim how are you positioning yourself in the market so um on the growth side at Gabelli, we've been pretty defensively positioned for the last year. And actually, for all but the last five weeks or so, that's been a very good place to be. On the last five weeks or so, really going back to the announcement of the phase one uh, deal that so, seemed so imminent five weeks ago, uh, uh, since then, the defensives have underperformed and the more cyclical stocks have done well. But I think we're at a point now where the, the pro-cyclical rally over the last five, six weeks is probably premature. The, the, I don't think the economic slowdown has bottomed. I think we're, we're looking at slower growth in the United States, in Japan, and Europe uh, for next year. That's actually the consensus forecast. And earnings have stalled out. Earnings have contracted for the last couple of quarters. They're probably going to be flat to down this quarter. We're in an earnings recession. Meanwhile, the stocks are priced at 17, 18 times earnings, which is pretty full. And market cap as a percentage of GDP is at an all-time high, higher than it was at the peak in 2000, which was the strongest bull market in history. With all that in mind, Howard, how do you position yourself going into 2020 then? We've heard so many people talking about buying the rest of the world, load up on beta, buy Europe, buy Asia, buy EM. What do you say back to them? What do you do? So I think that, you know, as a general rule, when the PMIs, and I want to say PMIs, I'm talking about the manufacturing PMIs because that they're the ones that give you the value added as an indicator, as a leading indicator. They create the beta in the economy and, and it earnings and uh, have been very helpful leading indicators. When they're below 50, uh, as they are, and in downtrends, okay, so maybe you had a minor uptick in the last month or two. They're still below 50 in downtrends. And when earnings have stalled, this is, tends to be a dangerous time for stocks. So I would 
recommend that people not go after beta because when the PMIs are declining, for example, the JP Morgan or market, M-A-R-K-I-T, global manufacturing PMI, when it's in a downtrend and below 50, you tend to get PE compression. You tend to have stocks uh, go down and you want lower beta. You don't want higher beta. When that, when that indicator is a downtrend, uh, low beta tends to outperform. So I would stick with the low beta and you know, all year long the emerging markets have underperformed. I wouldn't go after that. I wouldn't chase that, particularly with what's going on in, in Hong Kong and China right now. We don't know how that's going to play out. China's sort of between a rock and a hard place. If they really clamp down in a military way with Hong Kong, that's going to send a really chilling message to the world about doing business in Hong Kong. And if they back off, and accede to the demands of the demonstrators, well, that sense perhaps uh, sets them up for some trouble in mainland China, which they don't want to invite. So they're in a really difficult situation. They're a little bit of a tightrope walk. We'll see how that plays out. So Howard, I'm glad you brought up the PMIs and the, the weakening PMIs. It kind of goes right back to the consumer, it puts more and more pressure on the consumer in this economy to keep things going. What's your view of the consumer right now? Well, the consumer has been a source of strength. And as you know, the labor market has been uh, strong. It's been, we've, we've seen the uh, unemployment rate at 60 year lows and the weekly unemployment claims have been bouncing along the bottom for several months. I do think it's, it's, it's exactly the time in this cycle, uh, based on an analysis of the Fed funds rate with a two and a half year advance, that's because the, the interest rate lags are considerable here in the market. We are exactly at the point in time when we should see an increase in weekly unemployment claims. And right on cue, in the last two weeks, we've seen an increase. 5,000 two weeks ago, uh, 10,000 or more this week. And the reading this week was the highest reading since late June. It's a bit of a breakout. You know, four week moving average technically bottomed in April but it hasn't had much of an increase since then, but it, it is beginning to move higher now. If that number continues to advance, that is a real red flag for stocks because there's a strong negative correlation between weekly unemployment claims and the stock market. How would you think, and this would be a very contrarian call at this point, that we might have seen a cyclical peak in the labor market in the United States of America? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I think we're forming that as we speak. And look at the JOLTS data, job opening data, again, is consistent with what would be a rise in claims because the numbers for job openings have rolled over in recent weeks. Consistent with full employment or a cyclical peak in the labor market? Because those two things can be quite different. Well, full employment, of course, is, is tricky because that gets, you know, what is real full employment? When, you, when Do you want to look at the labor participation rate, which has been yep. very sticky around 63% for seemingly forever? Uh, it has not increased the way you would have expected it to, you know, this far into an economic expansion. So a cyclical peak, I think, in, in employment is probably what we're at. Final word from you then, Howard. Conviction call going into 2020. What do you do if you want to stay defensive? The risk reward, looking at the price of that story at the moment over the last six months or so, that story got quite expensive. What do you do? I think the health. I think the healthcare sector, uh, particularly the parts of healthcare that lagged this year, uh, for political reasons, uh, HMOs, for example, and pharma, fear of Medicare for all. I don't think that's going to happen, and therefore, I think there is some very good value in the United Healthcare's and the Humanas and the Bristol Myers of the world. Howard Ward, always great to get your thoughts. Really you. thoughtful stuff, as always. Gabelli Fund CIO of Growth Equities. A Teflon equity market, but one man there, Paul Sweeney, that thinks you should still remain defensive because it's a little too premature to call the end of this global slump yeah, in the I economy. Think very, very reasonable points uh, Howard made. And, uh, you know, 
clearly, it, I think it kind of comes down to the consumer here. We know where the Fed is. We know where earnings are. Um, and, you know, barring some major move on the trade front, um, you know, it comes down to what can the, you know, this really, this trade talks really deliver for the market. Do you remember the auto tariffs yes. on Europe? What happened to them? We were meant to get an announcement on that this week. Haven't seen an announcement whatsoever. In fact, I've seen several reports that suggest the United States may well delay any decision on okay. it, but I've seen nothing official from right. the administration. Well, I'm not in the market for a new car, so I'm... On that, Libby Cantrell, <laughs> not on the market for a new car, PIMCO's head of public policy. Libby, very little clarity on anything over the last five weeks except... We're getting closer. We're getting closer. And we have heard that we've heard that before. I mean, if you remember back in the spring, we were ninety percent there to a to a much bigger and more comprehensive deal. Now we're just talking about a much skinnier deal. But even then, and, and this is what I've, you know, told our, our clients that the things that we're asking China to do, even in sort of this scale down deal, are things that they've been very resistant to do. And um, I think it's a bit naive to think that they're going to change that posture, especially given that at least their perception is of the president that he's he's weaker domestically. Uh, they want to sort of wait this out. So they don't really have any incentive to give on these bigger structural issues. And it's those issues. I mean, there, there's a lot of press about the soybeans, but it's about IP enforcement. It's about forced technology transfer. It's these big things that have been the hangups to, to, yeah. to previous deals. Um, that are still continue to be outstanding. Libby, just to gauge how those client conversations are going at the moment, for me, either investors think an agreement still materializes or they just think that global growth bottoming isn't that dependent on a trade truce. What do they say back to you in those conversations? Yeah, and I, you know, I think we would probably take issue with this idea that global growth is bottoming. Um, I mean, we think we still continue to see a deceleration. Uh, I think our view, at least in the US, is that growth will probably bottom uh, more in the first half of next year than it is now. But, um, you know, with that, with that aside, I, you know, I think I think the expectation right now, and I think where the market is priced, is that we will get some sort of phase one deal. Now, the way that I'm characterizing this with our clients is this is much more a reprieve from escalation than a de-escalation. I mean, remember, we still have tariffs on $360 billion of goods that is still impacting the, the real economic you know, growth um, and probably will continue to be a source of uncertainty for the markets as well. So even if we get a phase one deal, I don't think uncertainty and tensions with China are going away anytime soon, certainly not with this president, but even with a Democratic president. So I think what we're saying is, yeah, this is, you know, might be welcomed in terms of, again, a reprieve of escalation, but it still doesn't do anything most likely about those, you know, existing tariffs on that huge bulk of, of Chinese imports. Well, Libby, we still see these jarring in images coming out of Hong Kong, the unrest yeah. there. It seems to be not only not going away, but maybe even uh, escalating. What does that do for China and their view of a trade deal? I, I got to think it makes it maybe a little bit more pressure on them to maybe get something done. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a great point. And honestly, I you know, I don't know how much the market has been focused on it. I think the market should be more focused on it um, because this feels like, you know, a possible um, source of disruption, honestly, in terms of, of getting to the phase one deal, uh, only because there's a bill that's making its way through Congress. It's already passed the House. It's now some called, you know, it's hotlined in the Senate. It's expedited in the Senate for consideration. And and the reason why this is important is because the Chinese have said that they will retaliate if the, you know, if Congress does pass this. Um, but to your point, does this make, you know, President Xi 
you know, even more inclined for a deal? Maybe, but I also think it, it makes him probably more inclined not to look weak on the world stage. And I think that's actually a tension for President Trump as well. I think they're both have in some ways the same kind of domestic, you know, political pressures that they want sort of a deal for their both kind of economic purposes and their political purposes, but that neither of them can afford looking weak either. Is there a recognition on the China side, though, that if they do go in, they send the troops into Hong Kong, that it blows up the prospect yeah. of getting a phase one deal? Yeah, Does absolutely. it temper China's yeah. approach? that this trade truce is still lingering, that we don't have it yet. Does it temper their approach Yeah, and I, you know, from our folks who are on the ground in, in, in Hong Kong, I mean, they, they've said that. I think, they, you know, they said that also she has, you know, a different set of, um, you know, pressures not to go into from a, from a military perspective as well. So it's not just because of the U.S.-China trade discussions, but I'm sure that is absolutely a factor. Libby, super smart, as always, and always great to catch up with you. Libby Cantrell there, PIMCO head of public policy on the latest in Hong Kong. Wrapping up all the numbers for us, I'm pleased to say, joining us here in New York City, Bloomberg Corporate Finance reporter Molly Smith. What a week we've had. We have. And it's not just investment grade, it's high yield too. It's the busiest week in two months in the high yield market. And I think a lot of this goes to show that uh, you know, it's just it comes into all in borrowing costs at the end of the day, of course, and that the, you can say all that you want of like companies have too much debt, leverage is so high. But when it's so cheap, like you kind of have to look at a corporate treasurer, the CFO and say, why not? Can we talk about AbbVie? $30 billion worth. Just how well did that price? How big was that order book? What were your thoughts on that particular issue? So when we see these M&A deals come now, they're so well telegraphed that everyone and their moms knows this is coming. So we've been ready for AbbVie since last week, and the orders definitely reflected that, and the price talk as well. So I think a lot of us were thinking that the price talk at the onset was pretty tight, actually, and I would say the order book fairly reflected that. We saw that it was about two and a half times oversubscribed, which seems pretty good, right? $77 billion of orders on a $30 billion offering. But we've seen some of these go way, way higher, usually when the price talk comes with a lot bit more of a premium to investors. So I think this one was well telegraphed from the beginning, and that's why you didn't see the book blow up the way you see some of the other ones do. Who's buying this stuff? So this is, uh, I mean... Pretty widely bought. Uh, When you see a huge issuance like this, there's so much pressure for the investment community to own it, especially if you're an index buyer, that this is going to make up however much percent of your benchmark now. And if you're not in it, I mean, you're really missing out. So you have to be in on these orders. Somewhat counterintuitive for people outside of the market, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That when a big issue like this comes through, the more they issue, typically the more demand they will get, Molly. Yes, definitely. And it especially helps as well that this is a very high quality issuer and also a merger that makes sense to a lot of people. When we see a lot of these acquisition financing, a lot of people will roll their eyes and be like, you know, does this combination really make sense? Should this one company be buying another? Are these expected synergies and cost cuts really going to be realized? And there's kind of, there can be a lot of doubt. But I think on this one, you know, I saw a lot of people in the investor community and the rating side as well. There's a lot of confidence that this is a really good tie-up for AbbVie and Allergan, that it makes sense for both of them. If you've ever heard me on Bloomberg TV or Bloomberg Radio talk about the triple Bs and break down a load of numbers, I stole those numbers from Molly Smith. <laughs> um, Molly, you did some fantastic work in the last couple of years talking about how big that particular area of the market has become. 2019 was an interesting year for much of the year because many people turned around and said, at least the world did the market turned around and said, you know what, there's no worry 
here. They'll get this sorted. They'll address it. And we started to talk about what Peter Chi of Academy Securities called a debt diet. What happened to the debt diet in the back half of this year? So it's a little mixed. And the main companies that needed to go on this debt diet have the biggest issuers in the index, the ones that have taken on the most amount of debt in the last several AT&T years. Of the world. Exactly. Okay. AT&T, Imbev, Verizon, uh, CVS, all of these ones, they're doing it. They are absolutely cutting their debt levels, getting leverage down, being incredibly communicative of that. And a lot of that also coming because shareholders of all people are asking these companies to cut their debt levels. So a nice rare time when shareholder and bond interests are aligned. You never see yep. this happen. The bondholders love it. But and but the thing is, is that while these guys are kind of like bellwethers for the whole index because they are just so huge, the index at a larger level, leverage is still broadly unchanged from a year ago. And that's when we look at, well, yes, we are still seeing all this issuance because rates are still so low and why not keep issuing debt? Why not keep refinancing? So you mentioned the high-yield market and another big, strong week here. So investors in that market, I guess they're pretty constructive on the economy because if, if we do see an economy roll over next year, those are the co- kinds of companies that are going to be impacted first, higher leverage, less room, right? Well, that's why we've definitely seen an up in quality trade in high yield for sure. And that double B's, that's the highest ratings tier in high yield has been so rich. And a lot of people would say it's just very overpriced right now, a really crowded trade. So that's getting a little bit tight right now. And I think you see more people looking for value in single B's, which is that next ratings tier down. You see fewer people, though, going for triple C's. That's the lowest ratings bucket in high yield. But as we were just talking about, we were uh, speaking with Colin Robertson of Northern Trust this week, and he's saying, look, if you think the economy still got room to run, which he does, this is a great time to buy triple C's, that the weakest credits should be boosted by an economy that's still running. He's had some pretty contrarian calls over the last couple of years. I remember he came on one of the programs with me maybe about 18 months ago and said 150 US 10-year, and wow. we were in and around yep. 3% at the time, and we came down to 150 so i wonder how his credit call turns out (laughs) Uh, molly great to catch up with you great work as always always making us all smarter here at bloomberg bloomberg corporate finance reporter molly smith there Live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios here in New York City. Let's get you some Bloomberg opinion, shall we? The only word you need to explain emerging markets, China. Its fear of a Minsky moment is driving a tectonic shift in the availability of money. And how about this for a lead? Let's get liquid. Isn't that fantastic? John Authors, Bloomberg opinion columnist, joining us on the phone, I'm pleased to say. John, talk to me about it. Explore it a little bit further for us. Right. Well, what is very interesting, given how much time we spend talking about geopolitics, trade wars and stuff, is that, in fact, if you just look uh, at straightforward provision of liquidity across the world, it's that very obviously compla- explains the great majority of everything that we've been seeing in markets this year. In a nutshell, as we generally know, developed markets, you've seen a big turnaround, a huge extra turning on of the tap of liquidity in the last few months. What is less appreciated is that you're seeing the exact reverse in emerging markets. And the critical thing here is China. At the beginning of the year, uh, there was this strong belief, there was this strong bet 
that the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, was going to turn on the taps again, as it's done several times since the crisis. Instead, it's actually, it's not really interested at this point in macroeconomic stimulus. It's interested in macroprudential avoidance of a Lehman disaster. They, they are working very hard to get uh, to help local governments get uh, the various off-balance sheet debt that they had uh, taken on back onto the books. They're trying to clean things up to avert the risk of a disaster. I think quite knowingly taking the risk at the, in the process that we're going to get slower Chinese growth as a result. And Chinese growth, the, the, the basically affects flows to the entire of the rest of the emerging market complex. And yeah. that ends up with this situation where, where you have a very strong dollar and uh, a, a still a very risky situation across, across the emerging world. So, John, as you talk to and think about emerging markets, you talk to people in the emerging market space, mm. is there just an overall sense that if China doesn't work, emerging markets as an asset class don't work? Can I make, can I make it that simple? I think you probably can at this point. I mean, you could, the other thing you could very reasonably suggest is that uh, emerging markets as an asset class is something we should uh, we should begin to give up on. But that's a, that's another very very much bigger story. Uh, ultimately, either um, uh, the the number of emerging market countries that either uh, provide stuff to China, uh, which is basically the business model for. Uh, more as the whole of South America, or have intimate links with it in terms of supply chains into the rest of uh, Asia, uh, and also the, uh, to a great extent, Eastern Europe, which is uh, involved with uh, creating creating cars and so on for the German industry, which exports a lot to China. Ultimately, so much of the rest of uh, um, the emerging world is economically tied to China, and then thanks to the growth of passive investing uh, and the treatment of EM as, a, as an asset class, it's financially tied to, to China. Yes, but, but yes, China at this point really dominates the entire EM asset class. So, John, I have to compliment you on this column here about the emerging markets. Your, your charting game and graphics game is very, very good right here. There's a lot of great stuff in here. <laughs> Thank you. And one of the things that really jumped out at me is that China is really slowing down. Yes. You cite the Bloomberg's China Real Activity Index. Give us mm. your sense of what's going on there, because China is still the government is still saying six, six and a half percent debt. Yes, uh, growth GDP growth. Yes, that's slower, but it's still pretty good growth. What do you think? Well, I, it, that that much is is true. That China lives by different standards from the from the rest of us. From memory, I don't have the number in front of me, but the uh, our own Bloomberg's own Chinese activity gauge is still something like five percent, which. Um, most of us would kill for, but is still, if you look at the context of Chinese growth over the last 20 years, uh, is dramatically lower. Uh, we've known for years that China needs to manage a transition, that uh, uh, Xi Jinping was, has obviously been quite keen uh, to, to uh, grasp the nettle of managing the transition, trying to move away from an export-led economy. Um, they are very painfully trying to do that. Uh, whether they succeed, I suspect, remains a much bigger question than um, you know than the trade war. The trade war, the trade war is plainly will feed feed into that. But the question is, can China really manage its transition, move on uh, from a middle income country without 
having one major crisis, one major stop or reverse along the way. It's, there are truly no other examples of countries that have managed that. You know, even the, 19, you know, the, US, the US in the late 19th century is in many ways very similar to, to China now and had depressions and panics every few years. Um, Korea and Japan both had their, their moments of uh, sharp uh, economic and market problems. Uh, can China somehow or other avoid that, given that so much of the rest of the world relies on them very right. uncomfortably to keep growing for us? Hey, John, let's switch gears quickly You had a, to yeah. earnings. We had, uh, you had a, another column out yesterday uh, talking about... Yeah. Earnings and you know it, it's interesting. It doesn't the earnings period I would characterize in the third quarter was okay, lackluster, yeah. so so. Yet the market grinds higher every day. Does the market not really care about earnings right now? I'm inclined to say that it doesn't. Yes, uh, I mean the the, the the research I was uh, highlighting was from BCA, which uh, BCA research, which showed that if you actually look at whether you look at how much a quarter in aggregate surprised compared to prior expectation or if you looked at how good it was in absolute terms you really couldn't map that to how the stock market was performing at all um i mean obviously if you take a nice long chart over 50 or 60 years there's a very close relationship between earnings and the stock market um uh, but in the short term it's just not there and i think that is in large part because rates at this point are so central to um to what we would expect from eps because of uh, because of the math of um of share buybacks because of the impact of uh, of credit costs because uh, the economy is seen as so um driven by uh, by credit that the uh, the interest the interest rate right. effect swamps the earnings effect to an even greater extent than it normally does John Authors, thanks so much for joining us. Two really interesting columns. John Authors, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us on the phone. You can read John's work and the, all the great work from uh, Bloomberg Opinion on our website, bloomberg.com slash opinion. And on the terminal, typing in O-P-I-N, go. Some really, really great work. They dig deep into some really key issues. Countries across the globe face a mounting challenge. That's how to offer adequate financial security for retirees today and sustainably into the future. To help us dig into this topic, we welcome Lord Adair Turner. Uh, Lord Turner is the Institute for New Economic Thinking Senior Fellow. He's a House of Lords member, Group of 30 member, and former UK Financial Services Authority Chair. Lord Adair, thank you so much for joining us. This is a crucial topic, not just in developed markets, but increasingly in developing markets. Could you scope out for us the issue? Well, at one level, the issue arises because of a result of two thoroughly good things. Uh, people are living longer. Uh, life expectancy is going up uh, across most of the world. And they also have fewer children. We end up with population stabilization. And uh, that's a pretty good thing uh, as well, because it makes it easier to deal with environmental challenges, etc. But those two good things, living longer and having population stabilization, they create a challenge. Because if you don't do something to your pension or your lifetime security system, 
in the face of those changes, you are just going to have, you know, more retirees per worker, which either means the workers are going to have to put in significantly more savings or taxation to support longer years in retirement, or retirees are going to be poorer. And I'm afraid there is a sort of relentless mathematical triangular logic here, which is faced with these um, developments. Either retirement ages have to go up or people have to put in more money in some way or another to pension systems, or on average, they will be worse off. And the crucial thing that we're saying in this group of 30 report that we've just published is to set out that logic, to illustrate it in multiple countries, and to say there has to be a more robust engagement with this by policymakers throughout the world. Now, what you can't propose is what is the single perfect solution to be you know, pursued in each country because the solution in each country has to reflect its own political dynamics, its starting point. But the fundamental nature of the challenge and the three possible solutions at the most uh, generic level, they are common across the world. So the issue seems to be common across the world, as you mentioned. Do we have any examples of any countries that are actually tackling this issue with some success? Well, um, I, I would say that Sweden has made some uh, sensible policies. What it has done is it has a tier of its state system, which it calls a notional defined contribution system. So it's still a pay-as-you-go, paid for by a compulsory contribution system. But within that, it said, look, we're not going to tell you in advance what your retirement age is going to be. Your future retirement age is going to reflect the increases in life expectancy which occur between now and when you get to retirement. And by the way, we'll give you some trade-offs. You can take retirement a bit earlier, but you know, you'll have to face a lower cost there or delay it a few years and you'll get a higher pension. So that's quite a sensible idea. My own country, the UK, as a result of a pension commission which I chaired 10 years ago, is now committed to increasing the state pension age within our a state pension system. We are going to take that up uh, from 65 in 2010. It'll be 66 by next year, and it'll reach 68 by the mid-2030s. And that has actually enabled us to provide a slightly more generous pension, but at a later date. And then there are other countries around the world, I would say Singapore, with its large form of compulsory savings, uh, has provided a significant amount of a uh, security for many of its citizens. And I think what intelligent policymakers do is not believe that they can go to any one country and say, let me copy that, but look around the world at different examples of how different countries have addressed particular parts of the issue and then try to work out what is the best combination of solutions uh, given one's particular national starting point? So, Lord Turner, the, in the United States, this country, as you are, I'm sure, well, well aware, has moved away from the defined benefit pensions that were kind of my parents' generation, if you will, and more towards, you know, kind of user uh, savings, whether it's 401ks or, or something along those lines, individual savings. Where is a country like the United States in terms of this global issue of we're living longer, we might not have enough money? Well, 
you, of course, do have a social security system. And uh, unlike, for instance, in healthcare, where you have an extremely you know, limited state private uh, market solution, uh, social security is actually uh, you know, a very robust um, state-driven, you know, government-driven, uh, federal government-driven system. And I think actually you know, the, the absolute linchpin of your system because it provides a base load uh, for many people of low and modest income uh, to at least to get up to adequacy. And I certainly wouldn't move away from that. And you have taken some uh, moves to, over time in future, increase uh, the uh, effective uh, retirement age within that. If you go to the private space of how people then uh, provide additional uh, pension uh, provision uh, on top of the basic Social Security, of course, you are quite right. You have seen, like many other countries have seen, a very significant move away from defined benefit schemes provided by employers. And I think that was bound to occur in the way that defined benefit schemes were designed in the past because they just placed too much risk on the employer. The employer took all of the risk of what was the market rate of return on the investments because the pension that got paid out was independent of that return. And the employer took all of the risks of whether life expectancy uh, went up uh, faster than was anticipated when somebody originally joined the scheme. And so, and it's a bit tragic. What has happened across the world is that, as it were, over gold-plated uh, employer private uh, defined benefit schemes have tended to close. And in a sense, we've moved to the other extreme where individuals take all of the risk. You know, uh, if their life expectancy rises, they're going to have to deal with all of that. Uh, if the investment returns are less than they anticipated, um, they will have to deal with that. What, one of the points we make in the report is that there, one could think of hybrid solutions. One right. could think of forms of employer-provided pensions which provide an element, a sort of guaranteed bit of defined yep. benefit, but where the amount that you get on top of that uh, depends upon the investment return on right. the uh, the funded assets. Lord Turner, we're going to have to cut it short there. We could uh, talk about this for a long time. A looming issue, pensions across the world. Lord Adair Turner, uh, Institute for New Economic Thinking Senior Fellow, Group of 30 member, former UK Financial Services Authority Chair, talking to us about long-term pensions. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.